Friends, we are indeed in Zechariah chapter 6 at the very end of our Old Testaments, at the very end of our series in the Old Testament, seeing God's plan of salvation through um, the first portion of our Bibles. And so I'm going to read for us today in Zechariah 6, beginning in verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Let's pray together. Jesus, we approach you as prophet, priest, and king. I pray in those offices that you will teach us, lead us, forgive us, shape us, mold us into your image today even through your word and your spirit that dwells inside of us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, one of the greatest proofs of the reliabilities of our Bibles, how we know that our Bible is true, that it speaks with historic authenticity, is that it tells one seamless story cover to cover. It never wavers in the story that begins in Genesis and continues through Revelation. It tells the same story, even though that story is being written over the course of hundreds and more than a thousand years, even though that story is told by different authors in different places under different regimes of power from different perspectives, it tells one continuous story the singular story of a perfect God who redeems a rebellious people through his son Jesus. Never wavers from that. When Jesus lived among us, when he was incarnate on this earth, he could move into synagogues and open up scrolls to random places and tell the people from the Old Testament, here I am, here I am. Here I am on the road to Emmaus. He could walk with the disciples there and open up the Bible from Moses through the prophets and point to all those portions of scripture speaking about himself. The greatest insult he gave to the religious teachers of his day, the Pharisees, who read their Bibles, studied their Bibles, memorized their Bibles, but couldn't see Jesus in their Bibles, he said to them, haven't you read the scriptures? Haven't you studied this book? Don't you know what's in here? Because all of it testifies to me. Well, today we conclude a series through the Old Testament. It's been 40 sermons. Today is the 40th sermon in the Old Testament. Some of y'all are saying it felt way longer than that. But look, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. You guys can spend 40 weeks in your Old Testaments. As we see... Jesus shining from beginning and middle to end. So my prayer as we wrap this series up is that Jesus will shine all the more brightly and sweetly and dearly to us through our Bibles today 
than he ever has before. We read this curious scene here that's kind of like a mustard seed. I mean, it's quick and it's brief. It's on page 795 of my Bible. It's kind of buried there. I've never heard anybody preach on it. But in God's gardening hands, this thing grows into a massive tree of redemption for all peoples. We set the scene last week. We said that the Israelites had been exiled to Babylon and that under Persia they'd been released and so now they're returning back to their homeland to Israel and the temple had been destroyed but now they're rebuilding a second temple. They're they're building this second temple under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah and they have the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last prophets in our Old Testament. They're all exhorting them as they do this work. And the high priest at the time, his name is Joshua or Jeshua, which in English is Jesus. The high priest in the Old Testament is Jesus at this time. And as a priest, Joshua's main work would be mediation and intercession. So he would be leading the Israelites again and again to the sacrificial system to shed the blood of animals so that worshipers might freely approach God being cleansed of their sins. That was his role. That's what he did. He led the people in worship. So now we've seen these three critical offices in the Old Testament. We've seen those who operate as kings, those who operate as priests, those who operate as prophets. All three of those exist in the Old Testament. We see them in different places. And it's actually very rare for someone to hold any two offices. Typically, you've got one person doing one thing, another person doing another thing. But every once in a while, you have somebody who does double duty, and they actually hold two of those offices. So, for example, Zechariah himself is born as a priest, and now he has a role as a prophet, and so he is a prophet priest. And that's rare, but he's doing that office. There are places in our Bible where a king is a prophet. I think of King David, who spoke God's inerrant word. He wrote many of the Psalms, and so he had that rare dual office of a king and a prophet. But to date, we have never in our Bibles seen in Israel a priest who has a king. Those two offices are completely separate. You've always got a king on the throne, and you've always got a high priest who's born in the the line of the Levites, and they're actually two biological lines. And so someone from the tribe of Judah is on the throne. Someone from the tribe of Levi is uh, assuming the high priestly role. Never the twain shall meet until this passage of ours in this highly symbolic move. The Lord tells Zechariah, I want you to symbolically make a crown and crown the high priest and he will share both of those offices. Now that must have been extremely confusing to Zechariah as actually most of the things that Zechariah will say must have been extremely confusing to him. But but look at the symbolism of this scene. Verse 10 says that these men who are gonna crown him, they're exiles, they've arrived from Babylon. That's a polite way of saying they are nobodies. They are the spoils of conquest. They're poor, they're landless up until now, they're homeless. And these outsiders now have the honor of coming back to Israel and crowning the king. They kind of sound like shepherds in their fields watching their flocks at night who are invited into the royal court around the manger. 
And then in verse 11, they make a crown of silver and gold. The prophet Haggai told us that God is gonna draw people from all nations to worship him. And when they come to him, they are going to bring gifts and those gifts are going to be silver and gold, Haggai 2.8. Which sounds a lot like wise men coming from the east and bringing with them to the king gifts of gold. Verse 13, they put a crown on the head of the high priest Jesus forever linking priest and king and says, and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now the Old Testament is full of many, many strands and themes and allusions, but two of the grandest themes of all, a king who reigns supreme and a priest who mediates, are now fused together forever in the person of Jesus. And because Jesus is a king who demands absolute and perfect allegiance, and because he is a priest who is the only one who can mediate a living relationship with God, he's a really, really big deal in our Bibles. I want to see both of his offices, king and priest, in the prophet Zechariah. First of all, think about Jesus as king. Zechariah 2.13 sums it up. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Be silent. He is here in this place, reigning supreme. It's hard to fill the silence with mumblings from the pulpit because he's here and he's awesome. Let this verse be a banner over this election year, over this virus, over injustice, over civil unrests, before my next tweet before my next gripe, before my next ungodly slander or faithless fear or quest for attention, let me spend a moment in silence before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as he is presented to us in Zechariah. Jesus is king in this day, Zechariah's day, which was extremely volatile. You had the then superpower of Persia. They were raising taxes throughout all the lands, including Judah, so that they could wage war with godless Egypt and the two powers were about to clash and there's this tiny little speck in the middle called Jerusalem that was totally helpless to the powers of her day and Zechariah says, be quiet, the king is in his throne. And as surely as he was king 2,500 years ago, he is king today in the face of hate and of fear, and of sickness, and of uncertainty for our national future. But Jesus is no passive king. He is a king who demands our worship, who demands every fiber of our being. Zechariah 8.2, I am jealous for Zion with a great jealousy. I am jealous for her with a great wrath as he should be. 
if he is truly the king as he has been described, we would respect no passive king. We are bound to honor him, to celebrate him, to worship him with every fiber of our beings. But if we can be honest with ourselves, we don't do that. We make a habit of taking fibers back from worship unto God into worship unto ourselves and we resist the one who has described himself as the ultimate king of our lives. The book of Zechariah takes a very dark turn. You get these disturbing echoes about what's going to happen to this king. And I don't think Zechariah could fully understand it, and I don't think his hearers could understand it. I only think it's us now, after the New Testament, that can look back and hear what Zechariah prophesied and see fully what he was talking about. Listen to these words about Jesus as king. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we see Jesus ride on a colt into Jerusalem. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then Zechariah eleven twelve. They weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And along comes Judas, who colludes with the religious leaders and betrays Jesus for that very price, 30 pieces of silver. And after the deed is done and he is overwhelmed by grief, he brings the blood money back to the temple, throws it in the temple, and it's used to buy a potter's field. Zechariah 13, 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And we see Jesus in Gethsemane as he's arrested and his very dearest friends on earth, they flee from him, run from him, deny their association with him. Until finally, Zechariah 12.10, they look on me on whom they have pierced. And in John's gospel, as John remembers back to that awful scene of his Savior hanging on the cross, pierced by the spear, he remembers these words of Zechariah and shares them in his gospel. Actually, there are over 50 references, passages in Zechariah that are reflected in the New Testament. If not directly quoted, they're alluded to. Zechariah is dripping with New Testament language, dripping with Jesus. But even so, Zechariah could not have imagined in a million years the things he was actually prophesying for, that this king would be the one who became the sacrificial offering. He could never have imagined the gospel upon which angels themselves long to look. That a holy, jealous, crowned king, Jesus, 
would do for his subjects what they couldn't do for themselves, that as a priest he would step down and bear their sin upon himself, that he would be pierced for our transgressions, that he would win a salvation that bulls and rams and temples couldn't do, but they could only point to. The judge places himself in the defendant's box, the king on the executioner's platform, the father steps before the child's punishment. And this is what King Jesus, now priest, achieves in that moment. Zechariah 13.1 On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and their uncleanness. That fountain opens, which is opened from Emmanuel's veins, that cleansing blood of Jesus, were any sinner to plunge beneath that flood, would be cleansed from all his or her guilty stains. Behold Jesus as king, Behold Jesus as priest. Zechariah is adamant that you will have him as king and priest or you will not have him at all. He has both of those offices united in himself. He is king, he is Lord, he is master, he is ruler. Zechariah 9.10, his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. In the very next verse, He is priest and savior and deliverer and healer. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. Zechariah sees both of these offices never before joined in our Old Testament, king and priest, perfectly united in the person of Christ. No division, no harm to either office, perfectly held in the person of Jesus. But it's amazing that as we come to faith and as we begin to understand that Jesus is prophet and priest and king, that we struggle holding those offices together. And in fact, with respect to king and priest, we tend to to major on one and minor on the other. There are Christians who major on Jesus as king and minor on Jesus as priest and other believers who look very different in their Christian life who major on him as priest and minor on him as king. We can't help in our finite minds leaning to one or the other to our detriment. Here's what I mean. For the Jesus as king camp, those who primarily think of Jesus as king, we make much of his authority and his sovereignty, and his transcendence, and his otherworldliness, his glory, and that is wonderful. You can't overdo that. You can't oversay that. That is fantastic. We need that voice. But without a strong theology of Jesus as priest, the only note of Jesus as king is actually more bad news than it is good news. If Zechariah is right and Jesus rules with great jealousy, if he is jealous for our worship, to worship him with lives of justice and mercy and kindness and love and generosity, and if we can be honest with ourselves that we don't do those things, we fall short of them, 
then Jesus' kingship alone is a very heavy burden to bear. None of us can fill it. And that's the plight of a Jesus as king only believer. But then on the other side, the Jesus as priest, if we lean more towards him as that and less towards him as king, we make much of his kindness and his love and his sacrifice on the cross for our sin and salvation, for our forgiveness. That is wonderful. You can't overstate the mercy and the love of Christ, the the lavishness of his salvation. You can't possibly overemphasize those things. But without a strong theology of Jesus as king, Jesus as priest can be reduced in our minds to a Jesus who is soft and meek and an encouraging friend who loves, but he doesn't command. He helps, but he doesn't demand. He's one who's going to forgive us, but he can do nothing to actually change us and make us look different. And whenever there's a vacuum of authority or kingship in our lives, we are all too eager to fill it. And if Jesus is not king, then I am, and I'm going to do what's right for me. May Jesus free us from these small, narrow, left-leaning, right-leaning visions of him. And may he refresh in us This bright, shining, glorious, risen, ascended, reigning, priestly vision of Jesus as he appears to us in the prophet Zechariah. To the Jesus as priest leaners, a Jesus who's all priest and no king, Jesus himself tells us, if anyone wishes to come after me, he's going to have to deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. It's going to feel like dying. If our Christianity doesn't cost us anything, if we've been able to take our pagan pre-Christ life and just kind of lift it wholesale and put us in our new church life with Christ and biblical language and nothing has changed and nothing has moved and our budget stays the same and our habits stay the same, our relationships stay the same, something is woefully wrong. If quarantine has lulled me into laziness of little scripture and lots of screens, of nursing old sin habits back to life, of letting the devil tell me that if there's something I really want and I feel wired for, then maybe it's right for me, even if the Bible says it's wrong. Lord, help us. It's not legalism to talk this way. It's not too much law. It's not enough Jesus. Jesus is king who demands our allegiance. And if we lean too far to him as priest at the expense of him as king, then our prayer is, King Jesus, test me, try me, see if there is any unclean way in me to worship you from my knees as king. I say that to the Jesus as priest leaners, but there's a word to the Jesus as king leaners. We're sitting here wagging our fingers at the Jesus' priest leaders. We're saying, I could have told you all that. I know that. That's true. 
But to those of us who see Jesus as king at the expense of seeing him as priest, our striving, our working, our clamoring for Jesus' attention, our ministry in the church for the applause of others, our coming down hard on other people's sins so that it will take attention off of our sin, our resistance to admit that we are a sinner, our refusal to be vulnerable with each other, our unwillingness to confess, our embarrassment to ask for help. All these are telltale signs that Jesus is all king and no priest. He's all commands and no balm of forgiveness. And if I can't admit that I'm a sinner, I don't understand that Jesus is a savior. And to those of us who lean towards Jesus as king at the expense of Jesus as priest, we pray, priest Jesus, hiding my sin doesn't help. It doesn't heal. Make me a joyful confessor before you and other people to own my sin, to find the fullness of its forgiveness, and to run to you afresh. Jesus is a jealous king. Jesus is a sacrificial priest. Let everything, let absolutely everything that has breath praise the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What else can we say? But your kingdom come, your will be done as we've seen it all through the Old Testament on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and the evil one because of this. You, Father, Son, and Spirit, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.